0: Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview has been tape-recorded, and my name is Paul Maleri, and this is X-Job Downloaded. And today, we're going to interview David Mangan. Now, have I said that correctly?
1: Yes, you have, Paul, yes.
0: Well, that that's the first. But having an unusual name, Maleri Mangan, people will pronounce it any way that they want, and often it's not the right way. You're a north northerner, born in the northeast, or...? We're, we're... No,
1: born in Liverpool, uh, the northwest in 1970. Sorry,
0: sorry. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, all, it's all the north once you get past Watford Gap. It is,
0: mate. Right. So you're you're a, a Liverpool led
1: Well, I was born in Liverpool, but that was more of an accident of birth because my mother was visiting her mother at the time, and uh, she went into emergency labour. Oh, um, right. And basically, said, right, you're not allowed to uh, not allowed to leave the city or the hospital. So. that's... That's why I've got Liverpool on my birth certificate. My, my wife's actually in Manchester through and through, and she uh, she gives me quite a bit of grief about being a closet scouser.
0: <laughs> and what where does your football allegiance lie? Uh,
1: Bolton Wanderers, unfortunately. You've got to support your your hometown. So, I was brought up in Bolton, so I've um, got to hold out for the Mighty Whites coming back to the Premier League at some point.
0: Let's hope so, mate. Yeah, so, I, in fact, the first FA Cup match I ever saw... Was West Ham versus Bolton at Upton Park in nineteen uh, well, in nineteen seventy six? In fact, it was this time of year in nineteen seventy six. But that was the first FA Cup match that I saw. I'd seen other yeah. ma- matches, but that was the the first, I think, the third round. But I'm, some time ago, I'm, I'm I'm good at trivia. So normal schooling, and then you join join the police, or were you a, an academic?
1: Very much not an academic. Uh, actually, my. Um, uh, my father, he had a PhD in physics. My sister is a doctor, and I kind of rebelled against the the family tradition of university and joined the army at 17 because I just had it in my head that I wanted to be a, a police officer. It's all I wanted to be, um, but I knew I was too young to join. When I left school at 16, so had a few jobs. worked in a worked in a, a for a building company, delivered pizzas for a bit, and then um, and then joined the army at 17. Spent six. Great years in the army, and then joined um, joined joined the police in 1993.
0: So, and what regiment did you go to?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, and most of your listeners might turn off, but I actually joined the military police. Oh so. no, that's
0: brilliant! My dad was a my dad was a, a military policeman.
1: Oh great, great, yeah. So um, we, we yeah we, we we stand for quite a lot of ribbing from uh, the rest of the armed uh, no. forces. No,
0: no, not at all.
1: The MPs and um, get a bit of life experience and. Uh, I ended up for my first two years as, a, as an MP fighting paratroopers in Aldershot, which was oh, a breaking you <laughs> break into what to <laughs> <do>. <laughs> That's
0: one way of learning it. Did you ever serve oh. in Colchester? Were you ever up this way?
1: No, the only time I ended up at Colchester when we had to escort a soldier under sentence to Colchester.
0: MCC, yeah. That
1: they got out of Glasgow, and yeah, that was an experience, and I was glad I was just dropping the lad off <laughs> Get out of there.
0: <laughs> Funny, a, a friend of mine's just uh retired he was the um warrant officer in charge up there he's, he's just he's just packed up there eddie and um i went and visited him for a cup of tea it's changed since i was a kid when i was a kid uh the police my dad was a, a civvy policeman as well as a military policeman and they used to play football against the um against the guards at, at uh the MCTC and we'd all go into the mess afterwards, you know, the kids and the whole it was absolutely brilliant. But it's changed. I mean it, I think um certainly since I was a kid, I think the conditions have changed there for the prisoners, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well this was this was in the late eighties, early nineties. I can't remember exactly which, which uh which decade it was but it was yeah, it was it was quite a culture shock. And we, we were there in, in full uniform and we were escorting the soldier under sentence and we effectively got Treated the same as a soldier, you know. So you march marching, quit marching, and marking time, and all this kind of stuff as well. So yeah, you do it together. Hand him over, and and then you uh, and we were we were we were let go. Thankfully,
0: did did you ever serve overseas?
1: Yeah, I served two years in um, Germany in Rhine uh JHQ, the Joint Headquarters of yep. the uh, British Army of the Rhine, as it was, there, and that was absolutely fantastic. Um, it was. Uh, it was quite close to the um, Dutch border, and it was a big, big garrison, uh, joint headquarters. There was a couple of nightclubs on there. There was uh, loads of pubs, and it was a real uh, nice environment to work. But what would happen is all the soldiers from the forward combat zone, um, so the ones who were closer to East Germany, would, would come to JHQ for the weekend and have a real party and a punch-up. So it was a great place to be an MP. Yeah. It was not and busy, um, but we didn't have to go and dig trenches and uh, <laughs> play with tanks and things like that. So, yeah, it was a great posting. Well,
0: oh, we lived in Munster. So my my dad was based in Munster, and then we'd go to Enschede, which is in, in Holland, and there's a big campsite there and, uh, and what have you. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's interesting talking to people that have been involved in the military police it's it's a different it is a different culture to the rest of the army
1: it- oh very much yeah very much I mean um, you are apart from the army you, you, you know you, you do embed yourself with military units but you're always seen as um, a bit of an outsider so it's just something you have to get used to but it was a great time great six years and it really set me up for uh, for civilian policing and joking aside about Fighting poetry in all the shop in the late '80s. That really did give me a love for public order policing and and you know the kind of excitement of it all. Really, so uh, it was a really good grounding.
0: It's it's funny because I've got a, a mate Dan Coombs who's just gone to police Scotland and he was the um, corps sergeant major, a uh, and smashing smashing fella. And I wonder, I haven't asked him, but. When you join the civvy police, you're joining with a load of kids who haven't been away – a lot of them haven't been away from home. They, they haven't had to ball their shoes or press their uniform. I mean, we had to clean out our shoes and press our stuff at home because my dad was, you know, fastidious about it. Um, and so was my mum, actually, come to that. But, but a lot of people go away for the first time when they join the police to a police training school, which they don't have anymore in the same way, and you're sitting there as a military policeman – you're getting your boots done in, in seconds and they're taking a week to try and get it done. What was that like for you?
1: I've got a, a funny story about that, actually. So um, my last couple of years of service were in Northern Ireland and I uh, I joined the police and I left Northern Ireland on the Friday and I was sitting in police college on the Monday and 100% culture shock um, for myself and for my other uh, recruit colleagues at the time, and there was, there was one girl, Claire, who I'm friendly with now, and um, she'd just left university, finished university, spent a year travelling, and and you couldn't have had two...
0: Complete you know, paradox.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was sitting there with sharp creases, bald shoes, sitting to attention on day one, and she was, you know, more chilled and relaxed, and, oh, what's this all about on day one? And we had a team building run, um, it's only like an adventure trail so you have a list of, 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 of areas where you need to run to and, and find out what it says on such and such a plaque or what this you know what what it says if you go here and and from a military point of view the the entire focus of that run was for me to win it and and you know be fast and actually get some fitness in at the time Yep. where uh, her view was it's just a little bimble in the countryside so it was a huge. <laughs> yeah. in, in attitude and objectives in relation to you know what what that run was all about because we we were paired together so we laugh about it now but at the time it wasn't so fun when she was in tears because she wasn't running as fast as I thought she should be doing.
0: <laughs> so Claire's treating this as a bimble round around the uh, around the field. I think I was that bimbler to be fair. <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: yeah. So I was taken to one side and, and a bit of a debrief and told to sort of uh, adjust my. Sort of military
0: kind of walk (laughs) on But you know what? It stands you well because actually to to lead and guide people in later years, yeah, it is about competition. This is what frustrates me about life in general. You're not encouraged to be competitive, but we are competitive by nature. And, you know, I was always the fat bloke at the back, but it didn't stop me wanting to, to be competitive. Where did you go to – what police training college did you go to?
1: Um, I went to Bruche, the uh, regional police college in the, in the Northwest. west um, I, actually, I actually joined Cumbria Police first right. up, in the, up in the Lake District. So I was there for, for three years before I transferred to, um, to Lancashire Police. But, uh, yeah, I think at the time it was um, two weeks in, in your force, just familiarisation, get your uniform sorted – have a look around go and spend a bit of time at, at various stations and then it was 10 weeks uh for your initial training at bruce then five weeks back in force in company back to bruce for five weeks pass out to bruce five weeks for the tutoring and if you're signed off fit for independent patrol that's uh, that's you after that um but the police training college, I, I absolutely loved it. it. You know, some people find it a real culture shock again, and all this is, you know, we have to get up, we have to be in class, we have to go for runs in the morning, and I, I just absolutely loved it. It was, yeah, think- compared to the military, it was um, so much easier, and um, because I had a lot of police knowledge anyway from the military police, and I was pretty fit because I'd just, just left the army, um, I, I absolutely loved it. loved my time at, uh, at Bruce, it
0: was great. Where did you do your military training? Chichester?
1: Yeah, it was Chichester. It was a Barracks at Chichester. Um that's shut down now. I think it's the there's a there's a centralized service police yeah. training centre. Um I've I've not seen it, not been there, but um I know where uh, Chichester's shut down. I'm on all the, the military police uh, Facebook pages and the show, the new housing complex where where we all used to train and everything. So um yeah, I spent I spent a good good bit of time at China.
0: My dad uh, went to Chichester and he was he was on the first um section to come out after national service and there's a guy he's from Cumbria um called Ernie Watson he's 80 I'm going to do a podcast with him and they join together and there's you know they're still muckers now and it's but it's part of the family isn't it you're you're the nice thing about it is you can drop in and out of it as well because people that you haven't seen since your army days you can walk into a pub and it's almost like you saw them yesterday yeah and, yeah, well, and people don't and understand you, that. Unless you've been involved in the police or the military, you, you, you people don't understand it.
1: No, you pick up a conversation that you, you, you ended 10 years ago and you just pick up and carry on again. And people recognise that we're all busy and... You know, we don't get on with our lives, and everything, but when you do come back together, you've always got that commonality in that bond, and it's the same in the police as well, yeah, you have always got that commonality in that bond and those shared experiences
0: yeah i I think it has changed even in the short time since we've retired, but I hope that it goes full circle and we get back to some semblance of order where where we were and and you you did the public order stuff which we'll come on to, and you have to work as a team because if yeah. you don't, if you don't work as a team when you're doing your public order. You might not like the person that's standing behind you but actually if they're not standing beside you and, and helping you out you're in some dire trouble. So you you did your, your 3 years at Cumbria where were you stationed when you first went there?
1: Uh, it was at Carlisle so I wanted to go to the um, you know the busiest place in Cumbria and everything's everything's uh, Cumbria all daffodils Wordsworth and and fell and walking and there's some there's some tough times in Cumbria. Tough um, people,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: Carlisle working some white haven, Barrow of Furnace, you know, the a lot of unemployment, a lot of tough people, a lot of people who, you know, that they're quite happy to have a, a scrap with the police on a on a Friday and Saturday night. So it was a it was a great place to work. Yeah, really enjoyed it at Carlisle. Still got some really good friends up in Cumbria Police. But um yeah, I,
0: I love it up there. And I like the style of policing. I went up there on a murder inquiry and we ended up in Maryport. It was a human traffic murder and it was an Indian restaurant that there and we ended up raiding it with immigration because we thought that one of the people that came over with this clandestine bunch ended up in this Indian restaurant. And the, the hospitality was fantastic. You know, they, they they looked after us well, they treated us well and but they there's some very hard people up in, in that neck of the woods. They they were they will fight anybody. It's as simple as that.
1: Very, very much so, yeah. And and they're not you know, they're not shy about um, fighting the police. Yeah, and, no. And, and it's, yeah, it was a, it was, a, I'm not saying it was a shock, but it was, um, it was interesting. It was an interesting place to work,
0: yeah. So then you transferred to Lancashire Police in 96. Yes. What, yeah. what was the um, the inspiration or the driver for you to, to make that change?
1: Uh, yeah, well, this is a, an interesting story. So um, at the time when I was in Cumbria, I was living in Penrith, and the uh, the police training college was in Penrith. And I was actually riding my motorbike to uh, a training course on um, um, on a cold winter's morning, hit a patch of ice, uh, came off my bike, and badly dislocated my shoulder. So I ended up at the uh, police treatment centre at Harrogate. The, yep. um, yeah, so Thank I ended you. up there. Went there for a two-week stint and didn't really have much success with my shoulder. Um, I had a, an operation to to manipulate it and try to get it moving again, and then they sent me straight back. And as I walked into the um, nurses' room where you have to to register your your attendance, um, I walked in behind um, a very nice-looking redhead from Manchester who. Uh, who um, we got on famously uh, and um, and uh, ended up, she now been my wife for 25 years. Fantastic. 20 years. Um, that was one of the catalysts for, for transferring down. Um, so, yeah, I transferred in 96. She actually tried to transfer up to Cumbria, but but didn't get in. Um, I, I didn't fancy Manchester police. I was a Lancashire lad anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, from Bolton, but, um, you know, so sort of north, north of Manchester, consider myself a Lancastrian. So I transferred to Lancashire Police and um, came down in 1996.
0: Well, that's a good enough reason, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, we're nearly 26 years in, married and um, 28 years together type of thing. Yeah,
0: you and I are a rarity then, mate, because there's, there's a lot of people that have fallen by the wayside and, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, very much so.
0: I um. We used to go up to CID courses, but I was on in an inquiry up in Preston, and there was a nightclub up there called Squires. And you, <laughs> I see you shaking your head. And um, I remember going in there, and it was like two for the price of one. It's oh, my my mate Mick Frost, who sadly passed away, he was with me, and that was a proper eye. I'd done Birmingham, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd done I'd done Tally Ho on my CID course, which was one eye opener. But when I got up there, I was at a different level. It was absolutely incredible place.
1: Yeah, many uh, police marriage has been ruined in Squires.
0: <laughs> like. And they all knew you were coppers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah. were on an inquiry, but if you're on a CID course up there, thats that was the, everybody went there for a few beers, but that was a salt-of-the-earth place, let's put it that way.
1: It was great, Squires. Uh, I'm not sure it's still open now, but uh, it was at a time when all courses were residential, and all courses, residential courses, in Preston, Preston had a huge... Police uh, College, attached to the headquarters, so yeah. you you have hundreds of people there um, on various different courses. Yeah,
0: brilliant. Yeah, we've been up there. We've we've done some uh, pre-retirement courses up at uh, Hutton Hall. Hutton Hall, yeah, yeah. That's we've, it. we've done pre-pre retirement courses up there. That was great. So you're in Lancashire now. What, what did you go on or into when you're in Lancashire? Did you go straight into beat duties um, on a shift there, or were you, did you go into your uh, your public order role?
1: No, I was on, uh, posted to, to Blackburn response section. So I was on a response team at Blackburn. Um, again, you have to then uh, reprove yourself to your colleagues. And um, so I just threw myself into response policing. Uh, Blackburn's a really busy place to work. Totally different type of uh, policing to Carmel. Um Different communities, more diverse communities. Um, so there's quite a lot of community-related issues that just weren't, um, uh, relevance up at Carlisle. Um still had a good nighttime economy, so there's a lot of um evening uh drinking and, and nighttime economy and and public order in the in the in the weekends and everything. Um and there was a higher level of organized criminality as well in um in Blackburn. So it was again relearning a different skill set. In that um, in that environment, I, again, I absolutely loved it. Really, really enjoyed my time on response at Blackburn. But um, I knew that where I wanted to be was on the public order teams, on the support units. So I, uh, I managed to um, apply, and I was successful. I think about did about two years on response, and it makes to response in neighbourhoods, and then managed to get myself posted onto a public order team in uh, 1998.
0: And was it a de- dedicated team? Uh, you're at OSU, or we call a full support unit in Essex, but operational support unit, that type of thing.
1: Uh, yeah, it was full OSU, so it was a full operational support unit, full time job, um, and uh, very defined, defined role. But in the in the lead up to that, as well, I actually applied to um, the underwater search unit as so they had a part time diver role as well. So I managed to secure both roles about the same sort of time. So I was on the public order unit on the OSU and I was also a part-time police diver which was fantastic So I'd, I'd phone up the dive units in the morning like where, where are you diving today guys? Burnley Canal no no I'm, I'm too busy diving in Lake Coniston oh Sarge I've got to go and dive in Lake Coniston <laughs>
0: you need your bumps felt." I tell it I've I, I got some mates because we had a, a diving unit in Essex and um, when I was a young PC we had a couple of divers die they came up inside a um, A vessel which had uh what do you call it um the air was was foul and they they died as a result of going up into it but yeah you need your bumps felt because that's not a job that i'd want to do i I trouble I, i struggle with a snorkel on the great barrier reef let alone going down into some murky old hole
1: yeah it was um it was grim. Some of the places we dived were grim. Some of the, some of the work that we did was was uh, unpleasant, but absolutely vital. And uh, oh, yeah. it was it good fun, and uh, I did really really enjoy it. And um, one of my career pathways was hopefully to uh, to to get promoted and become the sergeant on the underwater search unit. Because at the time, um, Lancashire and Cumbria had a joint search unit, and then. Uh, Greater Manchester, North Wales, Cheshire, and Merseyside had another search unit and um, and you know they'd worked together occasionally and everything, but there were two very distinct units and uh, I was targeting targeting that as a potential career pathway, but then they merged and disestablished the sergeant role. Right. So the Northwest um, underwater search unit now encompasses all forces across the Northwest, including Lancs, Cumbria, Manchester, Wales, North Wales and Cheshire and so yeah and they were based in Runcorn as well It was just too far too far to commute so that, that kind of withered on the vine a bit really unfortunately but I did enjoy my time diving definitely
0: and I, I get the bit about collaboration and but when they amalgamate such a vital role I mean you, you know you've said itself you've got the lakes you yeah. know you've got to have a team that can deal with everything that's waterborne across you know every county should have that that sort of team but but I do get it as well because it's about costings, and I suppose when you're when you're briefed, you've got to go and find a, a weapon, you've got to go and find a body. I mean that's quite unnerving, isn't it? I mean you know I, I'm a bit of a a, real, a body's not going to hurt me, not well, not unless there's a live wire touching it and I'm picking it up, you know. But but it's not going that's not going to hurt me. But when you actually can't see in your hand in front of your face and you're looking for a body, that's that's quite an unnerving.
1: Unnerving is exactly the word I was going to use. Uh, very seldom do you have any visibility, so it's all um, by by search, by touch and feel, and then you'll you'll put yourself on a um, sort of pendulum swing, and you'll you'll swing and do a, a search pattern in, in in a particular area, and it's all hand out in front of your face to try to find it, and obviously you have to be very close to have any kind of visualization on it. So yeah, it can be unnerving. Mm. Yeah, it is unnerving. It is
0: unnerving. Yeah, yeah. and the, and they are not in a body bag. At the end of the day, they that you can see what you see is what you get. And um, yeah, yeah bodies out of water. It's not a pleasant experience. How long did you do that as operationally as a diver?
1: About three years. So all my time as a, as a PC on the support unit. Spent three years of PC on the support unit. I was also a um, diver, and. Uh, do confined space searching as well. So searching all the drains and sewers and all this kind of thing. So um, did that for, for three years. And it was it was at the point I actually got promoted to sergeant, came off the support unit and back to response at Blackburn. Um, that's when the, the teams merged, amalgamated. So it was at that point where uh, I couldn't do any more diving because I was a sergeant and um, I was now back on on response. But um, the the force gave me the uh, confined space search team. So I had the force confined space search team. So we would do all the sewer searches, all the underground subterranean work. Um, and uh, we, I'd, I'd spend many a happy month doing the uh, drains of, of Blackpool for the party conferences. And our team would go up and we'd spend a month searching all the drains and sewers in and around all nice. the venues at Blackpool. So that was, that was an interesting <laughs> time as well.
0: <laughs> but, but what you're demonstrating is that the police have many functions in society. It's not all about patrolling. It's not all about arresting. There are so many different departments that most people wouldn't understand. The fact that you've had to go down into a sewer... To see whether there's any devices, then seal up the, the the lids because you've got to make sure that it's clear that you've actually searched that area, and it'll be a different coloured tape, whatever it may be. There's so much that goes into it, and it's unsung heroes. There are a lot of unsung heroes in the police service.
1: Yeah, it's. You, I kind of fell into that really, and it's not something you would apply for, but no. um, such happy times, such happy memories, and. Still, really good friends with the people we did it with because it's such a close team, and and you're doing such, um, I mean, physically demanding work mm. and uh, unpleasant work and quite sometimes quite scary work. You know, I mean, everybody suffers from a bit of claustrophobia, and um, some of the places you find yourself in, you you have to, you know, calm yourself down to to make sure you can you can carry out your job because it can be quite quite challenging.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The um, it, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting dynamic as I say and what it is is there's there's quite a number of different teams within the police and you do levitate back to those people that you previously worked with how did you find that transition from constable to sergeant
1: Um, it was I think think it's the biggest leap you're going to make in the police from um, being a PC to to being that Leader, that frontline leaders decision maker, um, the responsibility that's on your shoulders is huge, and um, you know the expectations that's placed on you are, are massive as well. So it, it was it was um, challenging as ever, but again, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a great team. I was working in a in a place that I knew well. Um, I enjoyed operational work. I enjoyed leading from the front. I enjoyed being out and about with the teams, um, and uh, I, I kind of thrive in that environment. And, and really, really enjoyed that operational challenge of being being a frontline leader.
0: When when you're on the diving unit, you you have to trust those people around you, and and that carries on through through your police service. But you were a compression manager. You dealt with all. I mean, was that something that you had to do on a regular basis? I can't imagine they'd have to go that deep that often.
1: Well, strangely enough, the decompression chambers, we, um, we used to take on civilian casualties. So oh. uh, it was the days before mobile phones and, and all the dive unit had a, had a pager. And if there was uh, somebody who... Needed um, recompression therapy. So, for example, if, if a diver had, had come up and they got the bends, um, and they needed to be taken back down to to a certain depth and then brought back up slowly, we do that. But th- the main people that we would treat would be people who would try to um, uh, commit suicide using carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's oh, the the, the comp- decompression oxygen therapy. Basically, if you take somebody down, I'm not I'm not a medic, so no, no. forgive me if I get this wrong, but if you take somebody down to a certain um, pressure, certain depth, equivalent depth, in, in a in a decompression chamber, and then um, put oxygen through that, so it's a it's an enriched oxygen environment, effectively the oxygen um, knocks the carbon monoxide molecules off the blood, because the carbon monoxide prevents them oxygen being transported around the blood and that's oh. what, what somebody so you'd, you'd, you'd take somebody to a certain pressure flood them with oxygen and then that would knock the carbon monoxide off and then they would they would recover and at the time there was no facility in the northwest that was able to do this no nhs facility that was able to do this so we had a team and we had doctors on call because the doctors would do all the medical stuff all we would do was um we we'd, we'd support the doctor in, in the in the chamber you'd have drivers you'd have team leaders and all this kind of stuff and we would take them down to that pressure and maintain them at that pressure while the doctor did all the all the medical uh, medical intervention so we used to get quite a few call outs for that actually
0: that's fascinating i never even thought of it for that for that reason
1: yeah and and as part of your uh, diving license for, for a force as well you had to have access to a uh, decompression chamber for the police divers, in case somebody has uh, an accident and you need to um, yeah. to, to get them get them recovered. So part of the, the 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 Home Office rules for having a dive unit is you have to have a, a decompression chamber. So so we had one at Lancashire.
0: Wow, well that's that's really interesting. When you, I, I mean, I'm reading your your notes here. You failed your HGV course while I was working on the underwater search team as well. I mean. I assume that when you were in the army, that it taught you to drive certain vehicles.
1: Yeah, well, they teach you to drive Land Rovers, and, and I was—I was, uh, I was I had my motorbike license, so I'd ride the—I'd um, ride the motorbike, the army motorbikes as well. Which, I mean, going back to the army, that was absolutely fantastic. I love my bikes, mm. and uh, right there, you know, you need to be taking this. Well, they didn't call me Dave, didn't they? <laughs> you know? no. so I need to be taking this bike out and. Uh, you know, spending spending three four weeks in the field, riding around Salisbury so Plain on the, on a motorbike, that was absolutely great. But um, the the HGV, our dive van was a, a heavy goods vehicle. It was a rigid heavy goods vehicle. But if you put the rib on the back, the the you know rigid replaceable boat on the back, it became articulated. So you needed a class one licence to drive. So you do your class two first, and then you'd you'd uh, upgrade to um, to, to your class one with your articulated so I was doing the rigid and it was great I was really enjoying it and absolutely fantastic and um, on my test day they took us through a and they do it on purpose is a tight left hand bend at a set of traffic lights in, a, in an urban environment so um, high density housing either side terrace housing either side narrow road and, and I'd made a mistake I'd approached it as if I was approaching it in a car so I was in the left hand lane going to turn left in a heavy goods vehicle and anybody who can drive a heavy goods vehicle will tell you you need to be in the right hand lane to turn left and so I ended up starting to turn and thought I ain't going to make this <laughs> <laughs> so, so I ended up, ended up wedged in between the two uh you know the two sort of sets of houses on the left hand turn so I thought well I do know what I'll do what you would do in a car you'd you'd reverse out to to reverse road, and obviously I I don't know what I was doing, I can't see behind me, I'm gonna heavy goods me. <laughs> So, burst out, and pff, dangerous manoeuvre, instant fail. Uh, but I had a fantastic drive after that, the drive was absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, I'm really sorry, that was the nicest, you know, heavy goods vehicle test drive I've ever been in, apart from the fact, you nearly, you know, caused <laughs> a mass pile up in the centre of Preston. So, yeah, unfortunately, failed. And, and then you know I had a, a retest booked, and but then obviously the dive unit merged, and I got promoted, and I never went never went back oh, to it, mate. so I missed the opportunity to get my uh, my HTV.
0: Your love for motorcycles, um, I, I assume you still have that now.
1: Yes, yeah, I, yeah, still, I still do love love bikes. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I, the reason I contacted you is I picked up on something that you put on social media about a, a tragic incident that you were involved in. And yeah. if it's not too... Are you are you comfortable to talk through that? Or... If, yeah, you, if you're yeah, not, mate, yeah. I fully understand.
1: No, no. 100% happy to, to talk about it. And... Um, I mean, it was... Um, I'm going back right to the beginning with bikes. Um, my father always had bikes. So when I was a kid, there would always be a motorbike at the house. There'd always be a motorbike in the garage. So I would be fascinated by this thing you know and it was just something i was just absolutely drawn to so as soon as i could ride I mean, friends of ours we we lived in a semi-rural area um a friend of mine had a had a farm and he had a field bike so i was riding field bikes from sort of 12 13 14 type of thing as soon as i could ride a little 50 cc bike on the road i was riding them on the road and and then it just progressed and um i've always always had motorbikes. Um, it's always been my primary uh, means of transport. To the point w- when I was in when I was in Cumbria Police, I was living in Penrith, working in Carlisle. Didn't have a car, so in the winter I'd be commuting to, to Carlisle on my motorbike. Which, oh my life! Uh, that that was had some challenging uh, and interesting commutes. Um, you know, in the depths of, of January, February, yeah, uh, right up the A6. Um, but yeah, I loved it, and I met my wife through. Through, I came off a motorbike and and ended up at the police convalescent home, and so it was always something I did. Um, I mean, they're good fun and they were great for commuting as well because you. I've never been to a police station where you couldn't fire your motorbike in the backyard and walk straight into the into the locker room when all my mm. friends would be parking the cars in various dodgy places in and around the town and and uh, and then and then walking in. I, I so it was, it was it was a practical bit of um, bit of kits as well. Do 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 tours on my bike. So I toured all around Europe on the bike. Um, Used to go and watch the bike racing in Northern Ireland a lot, the Northwest 200, with a with a big group of mates. And uh, uh, and every year um, I used to go riding with my dad, because my dad was still into his bikes. He he kind of had to. Uh, sell his bike for a bit because um, work just didn't allow him to ride it but when he retired he got back into it again and um, and we started riding together so we'd uh, we'd do father and son tours all around the UK all around Scotland and Wales and um, I mean one year we ended up we went to um, to Cornwall yeah you know, we'd spent many years going to, to Scotland and Johnny Groves and ridden along the top and, and done all the highlands. And we thought, well, well this year we'll, we'll go and do the second part of the, the Land's End, Johnny Groves and we, were, we ended up going to Land's End. So this one year, this was in um, 2013, we ended up riding uh, down through Wales, through the Black Mountains, um, and stopped at Maidenhead, which is on the, the north coast of uh, Devon. And then the next day, we, we planned to ride to Land's End and, and ride back it was a big old journey it's 300 miles plus but we, we'd done that plenty of times before those big miles so we weren't really phased by that we knew it was going to be a long day in the saddle but you know we didn't have anything else to do so we thought well, why not so we spent the day got a, a lovely morning rode all the way to land's ends got there abrogatory pictures um rode back and we, i was thinking this is this is actually a long way so we thought right we We'll, we'll cut out some of the twisties and you know what, we'll just blast back on the road. I think it's the 8.30 that comes back, the main road. So we'll blast back on the 8.30 and then um, we'll get to around Exeter and we can do a ride up past Taunton up to Maidenhead. It looks like a nice twisty road and um, and then we'll go out for a meal, have a couple of beers and go out for a meal at night time. So that that's the plan. Everything was going great. and We're on that final stretch back to uh, back to our accommodation and we'd probably ridden about 300 miles that day so we were pretty tired mm. I was sitting behind um, some slow moving vehicles high hedgerows no real overtaking opportunities so I was just happy but I'll tell you what, I'll just bimble behind these cars and, and we're sort of 10-15 miles away from our final destination and, and let's keep it easy and, um, and then all of a sudden the road opened up and there was a fantastic overtaking opportunity. So I thought, wow, okay. As I've done so many times in the past, I, I went for the overtaking opportunity. And um, got past the cars. There's only about three three or four cars in front of me. Um, got past them. Um, rode around the corner. And I just slowed down. I thought, i wait for my dad to get past. And then, you know, we'll, we'll catch up. And we'll ride back in together. And... No vehicles came around the corner. No cars came around the corner. Biking came around the corner. Mm. Um, nothing. So I was thinking, oh, and any biker will tell you that is an uh, awful feeling, that sinking feeling in your stomach thing. Something's gone on here. Something's happened. Um, so I was sitting on my bike and I was waiting. I had this sinking feeling and, and a car came around the corner and a guy stopped next to me. And he said to me, he said, are you with that biker? Um I'm like, yeah, he says, oh, there's been an accident. I was like, oh, God. And he said, it looks like a bad one. So I was like, right, this is not good. This is not good. So turned around, rode back, literally, you know, quarter of a mile back around the road, and just absolute carnage in front of me, absolute carnage. So um, anybody who's been to any RTC um, and, you know, seen the, an amazing amount of damage that can be done to a vehicle at even a minor speed. Yeah. Uh, and I could see there was a van parked on the left hand side, and that was in sort of parked in the hedgerow. I've seen my dad's bike smashed to pieces on the on the road um, and no sign of him. So I parked my bike up, you know, shouted down to, to somebody who's actually standing in the field, said, so, Where is he? You know, where is he? He said, He's in this field. So, you know, I jumped into the field and instantly you know could see that that he, he, he was gone um that, 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 that he'd been killed in the accident and what actually happened he'd um i'd gone for the overtake and and there'd been a slight kink in the road that he hadn't seen and and at that split second that he'd committed to the overtake a van had popped out of the kink in the road And um, he had nowhere to go, and he just rode straight into the front of it, Um, and and that was it. um, You know, he was he was killed instantly.
0: Sorry, mate. Oh dear. What do you say to that? Uh, But you've you've written a book. Yeah. Well, no. Let me go. Let me go back because you've then got to you've got to deal with that. Your police instincts kick in, obviously. But the fact is, that's your dad. Yeah. So you've got to deal with, so when the police turn up and they try and tell you this, that and the other, you go, well, hold on a second, I'm a police officer.
1: Yeah, so um, I couldn't do anything. To be honest, Paul, I couldn't do anything. I just sat in the field next to my dad and I couldn't do anything. I knew I was in deep shock. I knew that my life had totally changed. Mm. I knew what was going to happen. Um and uh cops came, they were great, you know, and I I knew the terminology. You know, I could hear them, yeah. you, know, you know, confirm fatal, all this kind of stuff and referring to his stuff as a fate ac and, and and so you know what they're talking about.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but I wasn't I wasn't able to function no, at all. Works. You know, the ambulance guy sat next to me and he kind of put put a, a blanket around me and all this kind of stuff and and I knew, you know, I knew what the cops were doing, I knew the procedure, I knew what the emergency services were doing, the fire service were there and all the recovery and those blue lights flashing and then um, the FLO turned up and I knew exactly what the FLO role was and I told them I was a job. Yeah. Um, um, but I wasn't able to do anything other than to sit there, you know, because I knew I was in deep shock. Yeah. But I knew I was in deep shock and I told them that. You
0: yeah. know, so. Yeah, no, no, of course, if you can recognise it, then... It helps. Yeah. But you've then got to get back to home.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's late at night. Um, so the, the the FLO, Michelle, who uh, shoots from Avon Somerset, please. Um So, uh, she, you know, I, I, I'm friends with Michelle now. She, she, she was great. Um, and uh, she took me back to the digs. I couldn't ride my bike that night. You know, I was absolutely exhausted. I was emotionally, physically drained. Oh, so,
0: yeah.
1: I then had to spend a very unpleasant night in in that B&B um, next to all my father's stuff, you know, and I was being stubborn. I'll, I'll, I'll ride my bike back the next day. It'll be fine. I'll get on my bike. I'll ride. And then, you know, it, sort of middle of the night, I, I knew I was going to be in absolutely no fit state to ride that mm-hmm. bike back to Lancashire. So, a former wife and she contacted my boss at the time because, you know, obviously the, the, my colleagues and and bosses back at Lancet had known what happened, you know, and they were obviously lending support. And um, my boss, uh, John Puttick at the time, he was, he was the super in charge of the unit. He, he basically arranged for a couple of lads to, to, to come down and pick me up.
0: Brilliant.
1: So a couple of lads from, from the team drove down all the way. Um, I, I left my motorbike at the police station at Maidenhead and, and they just gave me a lift home. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was absolutely godsend because there's no way I would have been able to ride back. at all that day.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry, mate. I, uh, yeah. It's, it's awful, but you've, you've written a book, um, called the last ride and it's about your love of motorcycles and what we've just discussed. Yeah. Do you still ride bikes now?
1: Uh, yeah. hundred percent. Um, I, I, I came back and I was very much, that's it, I'll never ride again. Um, I phoned up the bike shop. I bought loads of bikes from this bike shop. I said, I want you to buy me a bike. You know, they'd know what happened. They'd sold bikes to me, bikes to my dad. They were gutted as well. They said, look, babe, we're not going to buy your bike. off type of thing. Just, just you know, I just have a think about it type of thing and, and see where you're going to go. Um, and then over time, I, I, at the time I was actually an inspector on the um, technical operations department. And... and even though I've never really served on traffic, I was in charge of of the traffic unit, so they were part of my my team, and I used to, you know, help with all the the um, accident reduction stuff, and you know, I'd I'd um, I don't know how to investigate a fatal, but I'd support you know my officers who were investigating and yeah. all this kind of stuff as well. So I was I was in and amongst all that kind of world, and I thought, well, I needed to, if I can't as a as a police inspector in charge of a traffic unit try to make some good out of this, then, you know, I'm not really worth my salt as a, as a, as a police officer, as a senior police officer. So that's when the, the Last Ride um, initiative kind of came into my mind and I ended up making a um, a, a video for, for Lang's Police called The Last Ride, Mike's Last Ride. That's on YouTube still now. And I think Lang's Police, even though I'm retired, they still use it occasionally for their motorcycle casualty reduction campaign um i ended up getting in touch with uh the motorcycle press and say look you know this has happened i'm trying to highlight the dangers of riding while tired because i think it was a mistake my dad made when we when he was tired and i made the mistake you know when i was tired all this kind of thing so i um, want to highlight the 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 dangers of riding when tired so um how do you guys fancy coming riding one of our police bikes. So we ended up taking a motorcycle journalist, journalist around and took him out on a big RT. A big RT uh, being a police bike. He had an absolute great day. And there is, if you search some uh, pictures on the internet, there are some internets of that motorcycle journalist doing a wheelie on the police bike. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> police bike wheelie or something like that. There's a picture of him. He, he rode over a bridge and he was doing wheelies. And I cut, us an eight. Enough of <laughs> it. <laughs> but him and his mate managed to get a couple of shots. But so if, if you if you do if you do Google that, that was uh, that was an interesting. Eight. And that was um, that was Superbike magazine. The article again is still online. Superbike magazine. I'll be putting
0: all the links for everything that we've discussed in, into this podcast.
1: That's it. Yeah. So. Um, so that was a, that was a good day, and then then I did the the uh, the Mike's Last Rides um, film, which basically, as I'm talking about the acting now, we we got a production company in to film that um, and talk about that, and talk about my experiences, and talk about what we think the issue was. I got my mother as well, very bravely, because she was actually heartbroken. Oh. She's still in, and we're sort of nearly ten years down the line. She came and and gave her view to sort of bring that kind of family realism. Into it as well, and um, Michelle, of the FLO came up as well, which is you know great. So we have the FLOs input, but that's still online now. Um, and then yeah, then I, I wrote the book to complement it all, just because it was a way of of getting it down on paper really, and to try to show that I love bikes and I still love bikes, and bikes are fun. They're, they're fun things to ride. But you, you've got to be careful. You've got to respect them. You've mm-hmm. got to you know ride defensively. Um, and you asked earlier on, Paul, about do I still ride? I do. Um, I ride a much more sensible bike now. I had a, at the time, it was a bike called the Suzuki Hayabusa, which is one of the fastest production bikes you can get. And, you know, it was um, uh, a, a hyper-tourer type thing. You know, it was it would do 186 miles an hour if you let it. Um, and I did let it once on the German Autobahn, 186 miles an hour, perfectly
0: legally. Yeah. <laughs> Three um, miles a minute—you can't imagine. I can't imagine that.
1: It was unbelievable. I I mean, I documented that in the book, but that was perfectly legal. You know, I was touring Germany with a group of friends. um, It was a bank holiday in Germany, and we pulled onto the autobahn, and it was an autobahn. It was it was straight as a die for about four miles. Um, It was four lanes wide. There was not a car on the motorway on the autobahn, and um, and it it was de restricted. though and it was slightly downhill as well. So I thought, well. And I was a lead biker, <laughs> so oh my I life. I sat on this bike and got it absolutely flat out. And everybody who came on, there was ten of us on that tour. Everybody who came on behind me had exactly the same idea. So by the time the tenth guy got on, he looked up. He's like, "Where have they all gone?" the <laughs> road. Yeah, that was a great bike.
0: Oh my life.
1: But yeah, so I sold that. I sold that because it did have you know, it did remind me of, of the accident. Yeah, of course. Of that and I bought um, an adventure bike now, a KTM adventure. Yeah. So it's a yeah, sort of ride around the world, ride through deserts, you know, ride to ride to Australia if you want and all this kind of thing. But uh, um, yeah, I love that. And that's a much comfier bike and a little bit more sensible.
0: A friend of mine who I'm interviewing on here, uh, Paul Morris, I've, I've got an interview booked with him. He's Aussie. He's just ridden around the entire coast of Australia. And when I say the entire coast, he's literally gone around the entire coast of Australia. Abso- uh, Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, I, I can't remember. It was 91 days or something like that. But And some of it, when you get to Northern um, Territory and uh, Northern Queensland, there are no roads. It's it's they're a dirt it's a dirt track and he's gone around the whole of the I mean it's brilliant so yeah I'm looking forward to doing that but I'm a failed motorcyclist mate so where the MCTC is in Colchester the there's um ten reg used to be at Roman Way Barracks it's a, a transport uh, regiment there and it was de restricted and I was going too slow and they 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 failed me and I'm absolutely delighted that they failed me now because I would have absolutely been a statistic, I can't even turn a light on without falling over, so to ride a motorcycle, it was, um, yeah, that, I, lo- I love them. I, I, a Lambretta when I was a youngster, but uh, I don't suppose you, you, you bikers class them as real motorbikes, do you?
1: It, well, there's a lot of subcultures within biking, a hell of a lot of subcultures, and i put it this way, Paul, I, I, I don't own a Lambretta, I've no real desire to a Lombard, it's
0: not real my thing. Uh, so your last five years, you, you, you get promoted again from inspector to chief inspector. Yeah. And you are on the TACOPS department, so again, it's still maintaining a more strategic role within the all the different public order, traffic, dogs and all that, I assume, is that...?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's it. Um, I absolutely love my operational policing. I absolutely loved it. Um, the, the chance to go out, work with the teams, the chance to lead teams on the ground, um, the chance to be in command, you can have such a positive impact if the cops that you're commanding have confidence in you as a commander. If that makes sense? Yeah. So I've worked for commanders who I thought, you know, perhaps they're doing it to, to get through it or they're not really committed or they don't really know what they're doing. And the difference when you get a good the order commander are oh, f- phenomenal yeah. to that operation and i've always i've always really enjoyed seeing that positive impact i've had on on, on the cops on the ground um interesting enough i mean y- y- you'll know yourself well the, the, the police has got a very strict and rigid and militaristic style um hierarchical structure yeah um, you kind of get on the promotional um a treadmill and you think right i'll not be happy until i get to a certain rank or I I, I I want to attain this rank or you know i feel like i'm i'm not developing myself properly if i don't go for promotion and that was exactly the same and i was an inspector and i was trying to get promoted to chief inspector for for quite a few years and it, you know the, the the response was well dave you know you're too operationally focused um you're too public order you, you know you need to diversify you need to go and do some projects you need to do this and do that and the other so i thought all right okay well if that's what i need to do that's what i need to do so i went and did a few projects and i actually hated it hated it and um it probably showed i, I probably leaked a bit when i was doing <laughs> projects you know that it wasn't my thing um and i'm not saying i blotted my copybook, but there were other people who were demonstrating probably the the broader breadth of skill set you would need to be a potential superintendent, you yeah. know, something like that. So, and, and at the time, the, the the thought process was, you'll not get promoted to chief inspector unless you had the potential to be a superintendent. And I got to the point where I was still getting knocked back and, and all this kind of stuff. You needed to get your divisional support for promotions and, and I was never getting that support. And I just thought, I'm taking myself out of the game here. And I went and spoke to my boss and said look I said I'm taking myself out of the game I'm just going to concentrate on enjoying myself as an inspector I've got seven years to do my service I love what I'm doing you know I was a silver commander as an inspector which is unusual I was still a bronze commander I was on the tactical operations department um you know I I, I was going I went on a mutual aid deployment to Northern Ireland when um they had the 2013. Um, determination about the marching back to the ardoin. I wouldn't have done that if I was a, uh, a chief inspector. No. And that was a highlight of my career. So I thought, right, I'll tell myself about the game. And five years to go, um, there was a vacancy came up as on the uh, Force silver cadre um, rotor. And I was asked if I would like to apply to do it. Um, so I thought, well, yeah, it's operational. Um, I've not got enough time. To, to, to get promoted to the superintendent. So this will be the sort of last hurrah. So I spent my last five years as chief inspector, all TAC ops, force cadre, force silver, tactical firearms. Oh, again, an absolute dream job. Yeah, absolutely just, lovely. Absolutely, yeah, loved it. Um, the first couple of years, uh, you, I was based j- just at Preston headquarters and you were on 24-7 shifts, purely doing Force Silver Carder, force tactical firearms command, and know the responsibility, which was all right, but uh, you know a little bit limiting. And then, then we got pushed out to operational divisions. My last three year was uh, three years was um, at, at, at Preston in Southern Division, which was a new division for me, and again absolutely fantastic. You know, doing football command, firearms commands, public order commands, looking after a team of 120 or so cops who are all like-minded so your public order teams, your dogs, your firearms your roads policing that was great, absolutely great loved
0: it it. and it's it's boys' own stuff, I know that's not politically correct but it is boys' own stuff because you've got all the toys to play with, the resources and people seem to forget that if there's a battle, we've got people to go to war with. You know that that's we've we've got a, a good team, and it doesn't matter what anybody, any criminality want to do. It doesn't matter because our team, the police team, is bigger than theirs.
1: Yeah, and you had people who were committed to this role. They they they, they prided themselves on being professional tactical operations members yep. of staff, and it, it, in some you know in some people's view that that wasn't you know that was a bit of a um, uh, a bit of a dead-end career but for the people who are you know tactical operations through and through you, you know again it was it was it was a um a great team to work with inside the police And um, you know we had a really highly rated team and i again absolutely love my time and um I, you know rate some of those police officers as some of the finest cops in the in the country
0: how did you make that transition? Because you've 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 you come to the conclusion of your service, um, 2019. How did you prepare yourself to make that transition? Because as a as a chief inspector, you're quite marketable. Um, if you're, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but if if all you've done is carried a firearms for the past 25 years. There aren't many opportunities of carrying a firearm in the in the private sector in the UK. Um, how did you prepare yourself as a chief inspector to to move into uh, into the private world?
1: That's a really really good question, Paul. And I did actually think a lot about this as I was approaching the end of my service. Um, as I said before, I joined. I left school at sixteen. A clutch of O levels went into the military and then into the police. Had a lot of police qualifications. Had some military qualifications, but, they, but there was no academic transfer into the civilian world. So I could say, "Oh, I'm a silver commander, I'm a tactical firearms commander, I'm a bronze commander, I'm a CBRN bronze commander, I'm, you know, a, 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 a post incident manager." It doesn't mean anything. It's not a. It's not a, um, a marketable qualification. Um, it demonstrates leadership, it demonstrates decision-making, it demonstrates balancing threat and risk and all that. Um, but I thought, right, i need to going to start you know, trying to build some sort of qualification skill set up here. So the first thing I did was um, I uh, got an assessor's qualification through Langs Place to assess uh, new silver commanders and bronze commanders as they were coming through training because you had to take them out and assess them. So I thought, well, I can do that. I'm an experienced bronze, I'm an experienced silver, I could help the new generation to do it and impart my, you know, um my, my successes and my mistakes, you know, because I'm quite happy to say I've made mistakes as a commander as well, but learned from them. So I got an assessors qualification. That's a formal qualification. Um I was then uh, invited um to go on the it was a senior um, police leadership development program, which is for chief inspectors and superintendents. Um, and I went on that and that was four uh, separate individual courses at, um, at, at Wrighton uh, over very, you know, leadership things and development and inclusion, diversity, all different, different themes. <clears throat> and then at the end of that, you, you're, you're offered the opportunity to do an academic piece of work, to uh, get a postgraduate certificate in strategic leadership at level seven, which is master's level. I've never done any academic work in my life, so I thought... I'll I'll give that a go how hard could it be well for (laughs) an academic ball it was really really hard (laughs) but but managed to managed to get that over the line somehow Um, so that was so I had two pieces there and then uh, I I was I I was using uh, I was working with the College of Policing on um, uh, an incident that happened when I was a public order bronze commander when it had gone wrong And, and a police officer was very badly injured and there was there was some significant disorder, and there was some um, you, you know hold my hands up those mistakes I made um, as a commander that I thought right I can I can work with the fast track inspectors and and um, people on that to who are going to be going into inspector uh, roles with a limited policing experience under the belt to yeah. say look you know I, I've had all these years under my belt and I made a mess of this so if I can make a mess of this and really trying to help them to go through the national decision-making model. And as a result of that, I was offered to do a um, award in education and training, which is a training qualification through the College of Policing. So I thought, right, I've, I've got a few good qualifications here that makes me that little bit more marketable. And they were a massive effort to get, but they did take a bit more of you know my time to, to get these, a bit more of effort. But I had three qualifications there. And I was... Thinking, what I was I going to do? I was forty-nine when I finished in the police, and um, I was ready for a change. You know, I'd been in in the military and police service for thirty-two years, and I thought I wanted, you know, I've, I've got a, the backup of my police pension, so I've got the ability to go and take a risk and see what it's like out out, out in the civilian sector. And one of the things I always thought I would want to do was um, be a football safety officer. You work very closely with safety officers on football duties. I know a lot of them very well. Um, quite a few of them are ex-cops um, in and around Lancashire, and they're all good people. And we work together in a partnership role to deliver safe football matches. So I thought, well, that would be a natural thing for me to do. So I was looking at a way to get it's the level four in spectator safety. Um, so that was something made a few inquiries about potentially doing it while i was still in service and i just thought it, it would be too much and i've would, would limited opportunities to do it and so i thought well i'll wait there's something i'll target when i finish um i, I did have a bit of luck because uh, a friend of mine works for the efl and he asked me to do a piece of consultation work for him on um, and social behavior within football stadia it was you know, a, a reporter did interviewed, interviewed a few, interviewed a few safety officers, wrote a report for the EFL, um, and uh, and presented it with a view to, you know, hopefully that would, bit a bit of pick up a bit of traction and 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 um, turn into a bit more work. While I was doing that, um, there was uh, an incident uh, at Sheffield Wednesday Football Club at Hillsborough where um, there was uh, quite significant disorder at the steel city derby between sheffield united and and sheffield wednesday on egress at leppings lane right and there had been a uh, report commissioned by south yorkshire police in relation to an academic report um by a by a crowds um uh dynamic specialist in relation to you know the setup and the layout of the leppings lane end egress of fans Is it safe? Is it not safe? And the upshot was a result of that. There was a prohibition notice put on um, Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, which meant they had to reduce the numbers of tickets they sold in one of the stands because they couldn't allow home fans to egress in the same area as the away fans. So I was asked to go over there and just have a look at the policing operation. So I went over and had a look at the policing operation. Um, uh, the, The upshot is... Uh, my view, the club got some things wrong, the police got some things wrong and um, there was there was a way out of this though there was a way to unpick it and to put a better operation together for the club and a better operation together with the police and this would mitigate these issues and remove the prohibition notice so I wrote the report, presented it to Chef Wednesday, presented it to the SAG Safety Advisory Group and as a result Chef Wednesday offered me a job um, so I ended up uh, as as strategic head of safety and security at Sheffield Wednesday, where I did my, my level four spectator safety as well, so so that was an interesting development. And from then, once you're in that world, there are quite a few opportunities that that present themselves to you. So uh, yeah, so that was my first job, first proper job post post police over at Sheffield Wednesday.
0: And of course, the, it's um, it's known for the issues with Liverpool. Of yeah. The Hillsborough disaster. So, it's a, it's a really important piece of work. How did you feel when you were working, you're making recommendations to the police and organo- And the reason I ask is because we work with a number of different police, and there's a lot of cynicism around when you're a retired old oh, bill ex job. How were you received by the by the local constabulary?
1: Um, probably. Put it this way, Paul, I don't speed in South Yorkshire. I don't <laughs> do anything on with South Yorkshire. <laughs> uh. so I go there, I'm 100% of my best behaviour. Um, I I probably didn't go down too well. I was probably a poacher turned gamekeeper or something like that. I, I sat in a safety advisory group meeting for, um, it was a Leeds fixture, and the, the police were unhappy that, that Chef Wednesday were giving a full allocation to Leeds fans Um and leads can be challenging. They'll they'll sell their allocation. You know they can be boisterous and um, they they can cause issues. Um, and and there was an emergency safety advisor group meeting where the police were asking, or well actually, no, demanding that we reduce our ticket sales to two thousand. But the safety advisor group could only that was from a um, four thousand eight hundred allocation for the away end. The safety advisor group could only. Put restrictions on the ticket sales if the police can prove that it's an unsafe operation physically on the footprint of the stadium regardless of the issues it would cause yep. in the town center city center or on the transport network or anything and i, and I kind of knew this because i'd had this i'd had the same conversation when i was a police officer with a sag about a match when i was serving in lunch so i knew that I so i knew the legislation and um basically the police couldn't prove that it was an unsafe operation because a prohibition notice was in place, so there was no um, there was no uh, uh, home fans egressing the stadium in the same place as the away fans. So it was a much safer operation than it was a year before. Um, yeah. So when the SAG backed the club and didn't back the police, that was kind of the start of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you can't you can't kid a kidder, and and this is why we are really good in industry. Because when somebody comes along and says you can't do that, you know whether or not you can do that because you've been there, you've done it, you've you've had somebody else say to you as you've just explained, no, you can't do that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it is interesting once you leave. Do you still do that? Are you still with the club? Uh, no. So I was. It was it was a challenge commuting to Sheffield
1: because I wasn't prepared to move to Sheffield and. Um, I was commuting from um, from Bolton over the Pennines every day, and some days I could get there in an hour and 20, hour and 30. Some days it would take three hours, depending on wow. snake parcel, woodhead parcel, where they'd have to go around the motorway. So um, I got the opportunity to work with another event company, with a, with an event company, and they wanted to expand into the north. Um, they were based in Coventry. They were doing some work at Sheffield Wednesday, and they said, look, Dave, we really like you. Want you to head up our operation in the north and grow the operation in the north, and they offered me a, a, a great sort of package with freedom to make my own decisions and a clean slate. I thought, oh, this is this is great. You know, I can really make this work for me. And then the pandemic hit, oh. and um, I ended up on furlough. And they basically said, look, we're really sorry, but we know we've taken you away from Chef Wednesday, um, but there's no job here anymore because we're we're cutting our cloth, so I end up losing losing that role and and for the first time in my life i was i was made redundant which was uh, which is an interesting experience mm. yeah and then uh, there was a job advertised a, a contract job advertised with the england and Wales uh cricket board ecb to support their um return to stadium operations post-covid as a security manager on, on the security side, looking after the teams and looking after the safety and security of the international cricket teams and the 100 cricket teams um, as as we returned to uh, to sports stadium in 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 2021. So I did that for four months, which was just brilliant. Mm. Um ECB are a great company to work for, great organisation to work for because, yeah, you're away from home a lot and they do expect a lot of you, but they look after you when you're away. You know, you're staying in the same Hotels as a team, um, all the expenses paid when you're there. Um, they work you when, you, when yeah, you're away from so. home, but, yeah, it was good fun. Really enjoyed that. Um, but that was only four-month four gigs. So in the meantime, I had applied to a, to a company called FGH Security. They who were, They're were a national security company, um, but the head offices are in Lancashire for um, a, an operations manager's role. Didn't get that. Um, the guy who got that was far more qualified, more experienced in the industry. Um, he had years working for uh, G4S in, in the same role. So he got the job and he's a, he's a really good guy and he's 100% the right person to do the job. But the MD said, look, Dave, we, we really like you. And if anything comes up, we'll we'll give you a shout if that's okay. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. So in the meantime, I was working with the cricket and then um, the boss of FGH, Pete, he called me up. He says... Uh, he says, Dave, he says, we we won the contract to be the main shooting supplier for the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in 2022. How'd you fancy how do you fancy heading that up as a project? So I ended up I looked at it, I thought, well, yeah, well, that, that looks great. How how hard could that be? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, well, that's
1: the hardest job I have done in, in 35 years of working. Um, it, it was so tough, so demanding. I said yeah I'll take the job Pete we'll go, we'll, we'll sit down and we'll have a look at it and basically I said right I said how many how many how many stewards and security staff have you do you need in, in Birmingham so oh, um, we need we need 600 we're going to be deploying about 600 a day I said okay that's got oh, multiple venues right 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 how many have you got in Birmingham uh, none <laughs> so it was a total blank slate uh, again Um, to recruit, uh, train, equip, accommodate, deploy, transport um, um, over 600 stewards a day on on up to seven seven separate venues across Birmingham where we didn't really have a footprint. Um, So yeah, and, and we did it. We absolutely smashed it. But yeah, that was a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress, a lot of hard work. But yeah, it was good. I can, I can laugh about it now. But... Yeah,
0: because, I mean, and no disrespect, some people are really good at being stewards and some people aren't. And the problem you have is those that aren't are still wearing your tabards with your company name on it. They're representatives of you and they're representing the UK because they are doing it at the Commonwealth Games. So, I mean, I, I see it around the different stadiums that we cover. And, yeah, sometimes there's a lots of there's Some great people that get involved in it and they get involved in it for the right reasons, but there are some who just cannon fodder. I probably that's the, probably the wrong term, but
1: yeah, he, he, you're, you're right across the security industry. Um, I mean, one thing that attracted me to, to to work with FGH and stay with FGH the MD, he's um, he's a Royal Marine Commando reservist and oh. he brings his military ethics and values to the company and kind of expects you know high standards of dress, high standards of. you know um discipline respect for others good customer service you know so it's not the case of the security company which is who's got the biggest you know meanest looking guys is actually very customer focused and one of his views is private security should be an equally attractive career option as policing um and uh you know make an organization that that can that can have those kind of values and ethics that would attract the right sort of people. So when you set off with those as part of your parameters for recruitment, our recruitment team, were, you know, took a lot of time, spent a lot of time in Birmingham to try to weed out the individuals that, that you refer to, the ones, the yeah. cannon fodder, the, the jacket fillers, the people who you just do not want representing your,
0: no. your company. Or well, maybe we can get him on here and we'll do a podcast with him because this covers police and military aspects. So,
1: yeah, he'd absolutely love that. He's done a few podcasts, and again, he's very keen to raise a positive profile of the private security industry because he does have a bad reputation. Mm, you know, does. SIA, um, door staff, um, thuggish behavior, poor stewarding. He, everything that the company does tries to present a positive image of security, private security, and stewarding. Um, not having that image, you know, and, yeah. and, and being well turned out and having good customer focus and being able to speak to people and use your communication skills as a way of talking people down rather than becoming physical and all that. You
0: well, know? hopefully. But I'm sure he'd love to come on. I'll mention it Yeah, you. lovely. That would be brilliant. You've you travelled with um, FGH. Uh, you've got your uh, Level 5 Crowd Managers qualification now, SIA licence. But you went out to Australia.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a great experience. Um, FGH is part of uh, an organization called Major Events International, the MEI. And Major Events International, what they try to do is bring uh, shared learning from event organizers across the globe. So um, uh, the head offices are in uh, Switzerland. Um, They've got offices in London and and they work with all sorts of international event companies, security companies, um, who are all trying to, you know, trying to do the same thing uh, across the planet. And um, Victoria, the state of Victoria, has got the 2026 Commonwealth Games. And an email popped up from MEI they said, "Oh, we've got this conference in Australia. Um, part of it is going to be the handover to Victoria 2026, and would would FGH like to come over and uh, deliver some shared learning?" Uh, so I mentioned it to to Pete, the the boss. Said, uh, how do you fancy this, Pete?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, seems like a really good opportunity."
0: Happy
1: days. Um, absolutely, yeah. So we uh, we we flew out to. Um, to Melbourne, the initial part was in Melbourne and uh, the conference with the MEI because uh, that's the state of Victoria, that's where it was, so we had a really good conference there. But before we went out, Pete said, oh, there's um, uh, a colleague of mine uh, up in uh, Sydney who's got a, a security company who we've worked with in the past. Um, he's actually an ex-Met copper and oh, okay. he did five in the Met, met an Australian girl in London and then left Left uh, left the UK and, and sets set himself up as a security contractor in Australia and hasn't moved back. So um, Pete knows him from working at Glastonbury, and uh, he, he said, "Oh, he'd like you to meet a couple of senior police officers in uh, New South Wales Police who were struggling to access some courses in the UK because again they have they have a they have a similar but you know slightly different yeah. structure over there and they wanted to access some." some courses and they thought with my ex contacts, I'd be able to help them. They wanted some firearms courses. So yeah, I'm happy to meet them. It'd mean you spending an extra week in Sydney. Oh, go on then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> If I must.
1: If I must. So yeah, people back from Melbourne. I flew up to Sydney and uh, met with the, uh, the New South Wales Scots, really nice guys. I uh, put them in touch with some of my contacts in the, in the firearms command world. Um, and then they said, Oh, uh, Jim, the guy Jim Fidler, he says he's arranged for you to go and meet the um, operations manager at the uh, Sydney Olympic Arena. So I went to meet, um, uh, meet meet her. She was a great, great person, and and, and they invited me to to watch the rugby league uh, grand final at the the Sydney Olympic Arena. Oh, so I had an absolutely great time. Great time, over there.
0: And yeah. I, th- I take it you're a fan of rugby league.
1: Um. Like, I like all sports really. I'm not, I wouldn't say I follow rugby league too too much. Uh, um, it was just a great opportunity to go because over there, rugby league is massive, huge, huge, immense,
0: absolutely huge.
1: Yeah, so this stadium's like 85,000 seater, the Olympic stadium for the 20, you know, so the, the 2000 Sydney Olympics, they have a you know, big band on. They had um, dancers. They had fireworks. Oh, it was a great show. Yeah, really good show. Yeah. They're,
0: they're nuts. about My son, our son, lives in North Queensland, and they're absolutely nuts about it. Rugby, yeah. rugby league, more than union, where he lives. But um, so, what now? What are you going to do now? Now that you've uh, you're at this point in your life, you're still a young man. But w- w- what's happening now?
1: Right. So. Um... I'm I'm staying with FGH at the moment. Uh, Great company to work with. Um, Really like the 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 team I'm I'm working with. And um, after the after the Commonwealth Games, again that was a contract. We're doing the Commonwealth Games, and um, Pete offered me a part-time contract. Said, look, I'll I'll offer you a part-time gig. Stay with us. Um, uh, You you can help out operations, help out some project delivery, oversee some. Um, uh, you know, some some key piece of work. Uh, I, I deliver. I'm a, I'm a safety officer at Cartmel Racecourse, which is one of our um, uh, our clients, which is a beautiful mm. part of the world to work in. So, um, and then you get opportunities to go out and work in. I worked in Saudi Arabia before Christmas on on a huge dance festival, which was which was a, a, a another real eye opener as well. So I get to I get to work on these large iconic events. We we send over about 400 staff to Glastonbury Festival so um, I'll go and work on that this year as well and um, yeah I'm looking forward to a busy summer of festivals security supporting the operations we've got the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool so we're overseeing overseeing that that so will be
0: an eye opener yeah yeah so
1: I didn't realise how big the Eurovision Song Contest is but it's absolutely huge huge yeah it's uh, huge so we're doing the security for um Put some venues in Liverpool there as well in, in May. So I've got a busy summer of events, busy summer of festivals, some good security operations. Hopefully, get out to Saudi again if, if that comes off. And uh, yeah, just keep myself busy.
0: Brilliant. Well, before I end this interview, I'm going to ask you have you got anything you'd like to add or to correct? It's Good. been an absolute pleasure talking to you, mate. And um, thank you for sharing your story about your dad. That was uh, that's you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But is there anything you'd like to add?
1: No, I think I think uh, we've covered it all, all. All I'd like to add is that I mean, there's a, there's a for cops who are serving. You might listen to this podcast. There is a huge world out there, and there um, our skill set is is very much sought after. The the hardest part is getting your foot in the door of some sort of um, new role or industry. But once you're in there, with with the skills that you've got, you, you absolutely shine.
0: You're absolutely right. And despite what some of the press have written about the scumbags that have let us down, and I do take it personally, um, we are still a credible entity in the workplace. And that's why we do X job. When I when I retired, that's why we set up X job to help people make that transition. And that could be anything from local authority support to working out in the Middle East. But that's why we did it because we need that help. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. David, thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.